uh, that you take away the distractions of our mind, the distractions um, that keep us from listening and hearing from you, and instead focus our hearts and our souls on you and your word. So that we do not leave here the same, uh, but changed, transformed, made more and more in the image of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, I know you guys have been woo in a lot, and I, I echo your woos, uh, Francesca and Sally, wonderful people. I'm from Newtown, as you can tell, I'm from Newtown, actually. Um, no need for that laughter. And um, they're going to fit right in. Francesca, Sally, we're not too sure. Um, but nonetheless, I'll have a great time. Uh, but can you believe it, if you're speaking of wooing, we are at the end of the year to end all years. 2020 is about to finish. And woo! Unbelievable. I do think, though, it's possible uh, that there's a bit of a vibe that might hurt us, a bit of a vibe during the rounds that's sort of going along the lines of, hey, when we fall asleep on December the 31st and wake up on January the 1st, 2021, there's not going to be any more problems anymore. COVID is going to be gone. Everything's going to be back to normal. Life will go on as normal. And of course, as you all know, that is very unlikely to happen. It's going to continue on. Who knows what 2021 is going to store for us? We all look back on 2020, every single one of us, and wish we could change it. And for good reason. Wired within us as human beings is the desire to change. I think it's a wonderful, healthy thing uh, as well. A few years ago, my father uh, got a Fitbit for Christmas. Everyone know? Anyone have a Fitbit on? Do you know what it is? You're not old enough to have Fitbits, probably. A Fitbit is one of those things that you put around your wrist like a watch, uh, and you, as you swing your arms, it counts your steps, uh, and then it buzzes and vibrates uh, when you hit your goal steps, which is around, I think, 10,000 steps or whatever it is. Now, that was fairly amusing for a few reasons. Chief amongst all was my father is the least active person in the universe. I've seen corpses move more than him. I've seen beanbags move more than him. He has never done an exercise ever since I've known him. The second amusing part, though, was his relationship with his Fitbit. I mean, it doesn't give you anything when you get the 10,000 steps. It vibrates and has a little electronic smiley face. But from time to time, I'd see him, when that would happen, smile back at it, you know, as if a mutual encouragement. You go, you. Now, my father is a man of utmost integrity. I have never known him to tell a lie, not once. But I tell you, he became so obsessed with this thing that for after a while, I would watch over at him watching television, okay? And he'd be sitting there with, you know, coffee on one side, chocolate on the other, remote control resting on his stomach. And as he's watching the TV, he's doing this, <laughs> and just swinging his arms side by side. Now, the whole aim of the Fitbit is to transform your life, that you will get fitter, and once you get fitter, you will be healthier, and once you get healthier, you will hopefully be thinner, and once you are thinner, then you will be happier. We all want change. And I want to say on the surface level, there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. I think it's an absolutely good thing to assess your life constantly and go, how can I change? And believing that change can lead to the improvement in life, that's absolutely accurate and good most of the time. But as we look forward to 2021 and beyond, I actually want to tell you some incredible news. That God actually desires your change and your transformation even more than you do. 
As much as you assess your life and see your flaws and your your failings and think how better to fix it, God does the exact same thing. God desires for you to grow up, to be transformed, and even better than that. He doesn't just want it for you. He offers you a way to do it. But here's the key. When we want to change, it's all about self-reflection. What, what do I need to do? What do I need to, to add? What do I need to subtract? What do I need to start doing, to stop doing? But God's avenue for your transformation is not to be found in self-reflection. Let me say that again. God's pathway and avenue for your transformation will never be found in self-reflection. Rather, it's to be found in reflection on Jesus Christ. God puts it like this. Your change will only happen when you understand who Jesus is more, what he's done more. And the more you understand Jesus, the more your mind is opened to the gravity and the weight of who Jesus is and what he does. Rather, let me put it this way, the more your mind correlates itself with the reality of the enormity of Jesus, that's when you see your transformation exceed your expectations. That's when you start growing up to become the person that God actually wants you to do. But it's only to be found in a proper understanding of Jesus. So let me ask you a simple question. Who is Jesus? Well, that's not a straightforward question, is it? Truth be told, there's many, many different answers that you could give to that, both within Christianity and outside Christianity. But I think one of the the best summaries we have of Jesus was in one of the texts that we actually looked at on Christmas Eve. If you've got a Bible in front of you, flick open to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And what we have in this passage, Luke 2, is a declaration by angels. A declaration by an angel to shepherds about the baby Jesus. Luke chapter 2, and look for verse 11. Luke chapter 2, verse 11. Verse 9 tells us an angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around. Verse 11. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. God makes the claim from the very beginning of Jesus' life that he is not just an ordinary human. He's actually the Messiah. He's the saviour. He's the Lord. In fact, the Bible gives him many, many different titles. But the one I want you to focus on now is from the very beginning, the claim is that he is the Messiah. But what does that mean? He's the Messiah. What's the Messiah? And what possible relevance does Jesus being the Messiah make to our life today? Well, today we're looking at a passage, Psalm 110. And flip back there in your Bible, Psalm 110, which is rare, in fact, unique within Scripture. It was written 1,000 years before Jesus' birth, and yet it is quoted more than any other passage of the Old Testament in the New Testament. It is quoted 14 separate times, more than Isaiah 53, more than any part of Genesis, more than any other part of the Bible. Psalm 110 is quoted. Why? 
Well, the reason is that even though it's written a thousand years before the birth of this child, it reveals details about who he is. Details about what he will do. Details about who he will become and the implications of those realities on our lives that will make your mind spin. Psalm 110 is a picture of Jesus. Jesus revealed. Jesus now. But I do want to warn you, I don't know what your perception is of Jesus. When I say think of Jesus, it's very possible you have your own preconceived notion. Baby Jesus. That's a nice Jesus, isn't it? Crucified Jesus. Well, that's a sad but a triumphant one. Risen Jesus. That's a glorious Jesus. But Jesus that we meet in this passage today will shock you. I almost guarantee it. And it will confront you. And yet getting to the bottom of who he truly is today, as we learn in this passage, will explain everything you need to know about who you are, who you need to be, and what you need to be doing. Now, have a look at Psalm 110 right in front of you in your Bibles. And the key to understanding and unlocking this psalm is by realizing that you need to approach it like a puzzle. Okay, believe it or not, this psalm, even though it was written for a thousand years before Jesus, had confused people for the thousand years between its writing and Jesus' birth. It presents different, seemingly contradictory parts of Jesus' character and nature. It's almost like putting a puzzle together without having the picture of the puzzle in front of you. That's what it was like for the Jewish people reading it. So as we go through it, I want you to understand we're looking at it one puzzle piece at a time. There's four separate puzzle pieces. On its own, each puzzle piece says something, but together it says something altogether bigger, altogether more substantial for us to understand. The psalm actually begins, though, before verse 1. As Sully read out for us, Psalm 110, then it says, of David, a psalm. Or maybe your version says, a psalm of David. Now that little subtitle wasn't put in later. That's in the original text. We learn something crucial there, that this is a psalm written by King David. There's much to know about King David, the greatest king of Israel. But there's one predominant piece you need to grasp hold of today to understand this psalm. And that is that David, there was a prophecy about him that one of his descendants would be the Messiah. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you want to check it out later, you can. There's a prophecy that in the ancestry line of David, one of David's great-grandsons or great-great-great-great-great-grandsons would be the Messiah figure. Now, what is a Messiah? Well, Messiah is a Hebrew word that means chosen one. The Greek version of that word is Christos, from which we get Christ. So Christ and Messiah are the same word. And that word means chosen one, but it does not necessarily mean God. It doesn't necessarily mean son of God. So we have David. The prophecy is that one of his ancestors will be the Messiah, the chosen one. Then look at verse 1. Look what David says. The Lord says to who? My Lord. Is that clear? Okay, moving on. No, what? What does this mean? Well, that first, you need to understand, these are two different words. Two different words, both translated as Lord. The first one is Yahweh. Yahweh is God, the creator, father, father of all creation. The second one, though, that's a different word. That means Adonai, that's the translation, and that word means master or ruler. 
So the direct translation of this very first verse is King David, the greatest king from whom his descendant will be the Messiah, says, Yahweh, God, says to my master. Now, why on earth did this confuse people? (laughs) I think we can all see why. It's confusing. What on earth does this actually mean? This was particularly confusing for Jewish people for 1,000 years as they tried to work it out. Why? Because King David did not have any masters. If the Messiah was going to be one of his great-great-great-grandchildren and the Messiah was just going to be a normal human being like him, then how on earth would he be calling him master? David was the greatest of the kings. It made absolutely no sense. It confused people for a thousand years until Jesus. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22, the reading that we had by Francesca. Matthew chapter 22, verse 41. We've got this incredible interaction with Jesus and the Pharisees. They're the Jewish religious leaders of the time. Okay, check this out. Listen to Jesus in this interaction. While the Pharisees gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. Now, let me just ask you, is that right or wrong? It's right. Okay, the Pharisees have got it absolutely correct. The Messiah would be a son of David. Jesus then said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Jesus is pointing to a bigger truth than the Jewish people realized and perhaps a bigger truth than you and I might realize. Jesus is not just implying that he is the Messiah. And indeed, the proclamation and declaration about Jesus being the Messiah had been done from his birth, and he had affirmed it himself. But Jesus is pointing to the fact that the Messiah might be more than what they considered. The Jewish people had no concept of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Trinity did not exist in them, even though the Old Testament had pointed to it. They hadn't picked it up. And so Jesus is pointing to the fact that the Messiah is more than just a man. There's something else going on. That's puzzle piece number one. This is about the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah is the chosen one, but there's more to it than that. Then when we get into the psalm, I want you to consider two other parts of Jesus' character that are revealed to us that might shock and confront you. Two different characteristics, so I want to implore you have urgent relevance for your life. First of all, Verse 1 and verse 2. Have a look. Who is Jesus? My Lord. Then he says, verse 1, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then verse 2, David the psalmist speaking to Jesus says, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Who is Jesus as revealed here? Jesus is king. Jesus is a king. In verse 1, when it says the Messiah sits at God's right hand, that's not an expression that means right hand is sort of second on the pegging order. 
Like first cab off the rank, you're the right hand. No, in the Bible, when it uses the term sitting at your right hand, it's an expression of equal honor, authority, and dignity. God says to Jesus, you will sit next to me, Messiah, chosen one. You will sit next to me for what purpose? So that you will rule in the midst of your enemies. You will be king. You know, we look to who for leadership in our society? Well, if you're anything like me, at 11 o'clock every day, you turn on the news to see Premier Gladys, who's doing a terrific job, isn't she? But making a declaration about what we're allowed to do. We look to premiers and prime ministers, presidents and dictators, despots and, and tyrants. But the declaration here is very simple. These people operate only under the authority given to them by Jesus. If you want to see true authority and true power, true rule and true reign, it's found in Jesus the King. And there's two consequences that flow out of that. First of all, this is great news if you are a Christian. Wonderful, life-changing news if you are one of God's people. But secondly, this is terrifyingly bad news if you're not one of God's people. First of all, look at verse 3. In verse 3, we see the response of God's people to the kingship of Jesus. How will it be? They will respond to the kingship of Jesus with enthusiasm and embrace. God's people will love his reign. And if you're a Christian here tonight, do you remember not being a Christian? There is a time in your life when the things of Jesus, the things of God, meant nothing to you. Hearing the words that were proclaimed about Jesus was like hearing words bounce off a rock. It meant nothing. And then suddenly, you got it. And following King Jesus became the best thing about you. If you're one of God's people, you love that you're one of God's people. You love that Jesus is King. You know you can trust him. Even better, you know what happens at the end. But this is terrifyingly horrible news. If you are one of God's enemies. Look at verse 1 and verse 2. What does God, Yahweh, promise Adonai, the Master, Jesus, the Messiah? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Verse 2, you will rule in the midst of your enemies. Jesus' enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. His rule will be enforced, implemented amongst his enemies. But not only that, look at verse 5 to 7. These are words written about Jesus. Jesus will judge, yes, with fairness, yes, with mercy, but with severity. He will judge with severity. There will come a time when every single person you know and don't know will drop their knee before the throne of Jesus and acknowledge him as king. But please do not mishear what the Bible is saying, that there will come a time when there will be universal acknowledgement and universal salvation, where even people who reject Jesus will be saved and become Christians. That is not what this means. What this means is that there will come a time when God's people will drop their knee before Jesus as king and praise him. But there will also come a time when God's enemies will drop their knee before him, but not in praise, but in judgment. In punishment. Finally seeing the truth, Jesus is king and I've rejected him. So the key question is, who are Jesus' enemies? That's a funny question to ask, isn't it? Are you an enemy of Jesus? 
I bet you you can ask 100 people and barely anyone would ever admit to it. <laughs> yeah, I'm an enemy of Jesus. No, we don't think that way. If you were to say, who is an enemy of Jesus, what would you say? Well, I can tell you who'd be top of the list. Hitler, always. Hitler, Stalin, Osama bin Laden, whoever it was who invented COVID. You know, these sort of people, they're the enemies of Jesus, surely. But us, no. Why do you think that? The Bible says that by your own nature, you are an enemy of Jesus. Why? Because an enemy of Jesus is anyone who refuses to acknowledge him as king. Anyone who looks at his reign and rule and says, No, me, not you, me. I'm the king, I'm the queen, not you. Me. That's an enemy of Jesus. Anyone who insists on maintaining their own authority in the face of the rightful rule of Jesus. Jesus is king and he will not tolerate pretenders to the throne. And let me assure you of something. It is a terrifying thing to have the God of the universe as your enemy, isn't it? And if you are a Christian here today, and I say this as someone with dearly close people in my life who do not love Jesus. Is it not a terrifying thing to think of the ones that we love being enemies of the king of the universe and facing his punishment? I wonder if you think this seems a bit harsh, a bit like Jesus, chill. Well, maybe let me explain it this way. I've got a mate called Mitch, and Mitch loves to fight. Okay, we used to play footy together, and it was a competition to see how quickly Mitch could get sent off. He hated to play football. He just loved to punch people playing football. That was his thing. Now, the thing about playing the glorious game of rugby league, God's favourite sport, rugby league, is that, is that, <laughs> is that there's very, what am I saying? Is that there's very little consequences to fighting. Okay, generally speaking, it's not in the rules, but it's tolerated. Okay, you can punch someone, you might get sent off, but that's generally where it ends. So Mitch would do that. He'd punch someone, he'd get punched, he'd get sent off, he'd walk off, it'd end like that. He might get a suspension, but he might not. But I want you to consider this. Every action has a reaction. Every action has a consequence. So think of a different universe. This never happened, but imagine. Mitch gets in a fight in a game, boom! gets red carded. But instead of just trudging off, Mitch turns around to the ref and goes, boom! Let me ask you, do you think there's a different consequence? Well, if you don't, it's because you've never punched a referee. Let me assure, no, I haven't, but I've seen it happen. Mitch trudges off the field after punching the ref and the police are there to arrest him because you can't go punching referees. But Mitch, he sees the cops, he swerves, he swivels, he pivots, and boom, punches a cop right in the face. Let me ask you, do you think it's different consequences to punch a policeman? If you haven't, it just means you've never done it, okay? Punching policemen is never a good idea. But Mitch, he escapes the police. He runs to the airport. He gets on the only flight out of Australia, okay? It arrives, it gets to London. He gets a black club. He goes all the way to Buckingham Palace. And if I've learned nothing else from my wife watching The Crown... It's that there's very little security at Buckingham Palace. 
he climbs the walls, he jumps over, he runs in, he gets into the breakfast room. There's Queen Lizzie sitting there eating her wheat bix He runs straight up to this 95-year-old great-grandmother and boom. Same action, different consequence. Do you think? Punching the queen in the nose while she's eating her wheat bix brings a slightly different consequence to punching some bogan on the field in a rugby league game. Why? It's all about the position of the person you rebel and reject. It's all about the person, the position of the person who you assault and attack. And you might think, well, I've never punched Jesus in the nose. You're right. You've done far worse. So have I. All of us here have looked at Jesus and said, no, me, not you. I'm the king. I'm the queen, not you. We've rebelled and rejected against his kingship. We've become his enemies. And it's a terrifying thing indeed to be enemies with the king of the universe. That's puzzle piece number two. Jesus is Messiah, but there's more to it than we think. Jesus is king, and that's great news for God's people, but terrifying news for those who've rejected God. But then look again at Psalm 110 and go specifically to verse 4. Because you see, verse 4 is a verse of the Bible which baffled and confused Jewish scholars for literally a millennia. For 1,000 years, they couldn't make head or tail of it. Let me read it for you. The Lord has sworn... And will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What? We can empathize with the Jewish scholars, surely, but I guarantee you their confusion was for probably a different reason than our own. Let's think about this passage for a second, this little collection of words. Here we have the Lord, Yahweh, swear. Now, just a side note, the Lord never takes oaths in the Bible, very, very rarely. He cannot lie. So there's very little need for him to take an oath saying, I will not lie. It's kind of a bit superfluous, redundant. And yet in Hebrew, there's no, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Goodness sakes. Punctuation. There's no emojis or underlines. What is this except God emphasizing attention to the importance of what he's saying? He takes an oath what does he say? You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Well, can I assure you this has urgent relevance to your life today, even though you might have no idea what it means. But to get to the bottom of this puzzle piece, you just need to work out what a priest is and who Melchizedek is. Let me just try and rush through those quickly. What is a priest? Well, in the Christian world... When I say a priest, it's very common that you might think of someone wearing a clerical collar, a Catholic or Anglican or Orthodox minister. Um, We don't use that word here at EV deliberately. It's it's not accidental. Deliberately, we don't use that word. But some Christian denominations do use that word. Uh, And those priests operate similar to pastors do at our church. They lead, they teach, they preach, those kind of things. But this is not talking about that kind of priest. This is not a Christian priest. This is talking about a Jewish priest. Priest. Did you know Jews had priests? They did. Okay, this is talking about a Jewish priest. And a Jewish priest has several things about their role which are completely different to Christian priests. I just want you to tell you three of them. One, 
their qualifications. The only people qualified to be a Jewish priest had to come from a tribe called Levi. Okay, a tribe called Levi. The Jewish people were split up into 12 tribes. One of these tribes was Levi, the Levites. Priests could only come from this tribe. A little bit later, kings, when they were established, could only come from the tribe of, does anyone know? Judah. No one said it, but yes, congratulations, Judah. So kings could only come from Judah. Priests could only come from Levi. Wow. You're much better than the 1030 congregation. Imagine how bad they were. Okay. <laughs> Levi, priests. Secondly, priests had a primary function in the Jewish world we do not have today. And that is they were mediators, intercessors between God and the people. They acted as go-betweens, if you like. We don't need to do that today, praise God. But they did. And that ties directly into the third distinctive about Jewish priests. How did they act as intercessors? Primarily, they did that by sacrifice. So they would get animals and bring them to the temple or the tabernacle. Those animals would be sacrificed by the priests and that would happen so that the sacrifice would atone for the sins of the people. So the people would be over here sinning. The animals would be provided to the priests. The priests would go to God. They'd do the sacrifice. And then the people would be forgiven. Of course, this was a problem because it was never an eternal forgiveness, but a temporary one. And the people, I mean, how many times would they sin over and over and over again? So back and forth, back and forth. Okay, you've got a picture of a priest, a Jewish priest from the tribe of Levi, intercessor, sacrifice. Who's Melchizedek? Well, Melchizedek is a very, very mysterious character in the Bible. Before this point, and stay with me, I know this is complex, but up until this point, he only came once in the Bible, and that was only for four verses. You don't have to go there, but it's in Genesis chapter 14 if you want to, but I'll read it out for you anyway. In Genesis chapter 14, you have Abram, Abraham, and he's won a battle. And then this mysterious guy appears out of nowhere. Genesis 14, verse 18. Let me just read it for you for a moment. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. So hold on. Do you remember? Priests could only come from the tribe of Levi. Kings came from the tribe of Judah. We've got this man, Melchizedek. He's the king of Salem, the city which later became Jerusalem, and also the priest. Here's a piece of a puzzle. Melchizedek, a priest, and a king together. What on earth does this mean? And what relevance could any of this have to my life in 2020, nearly 21 Australia? I assure you it's of urgent relevance. In fact, I assure you, understanding this makes all the difference to your life today. But to understand it, you need to think of the context. Imagine, if you will, that you're a first century Jewish person. The Jews had been oppressed for years. Egyptians, Philistines, Assyrians, Babylonians, and then in Jesus' time, finally, the Romans. They knew that God had promised them a Messiah. 
but they were utterly baffled about who that would be and what that would look like. Why? Well, because the Old Testament, can you imagine just having the Old Testament of the Bible, not the New Testament? If you've read the Bible before, odds are you've read the New Testament, so you know what happens. But if you just have the Old Testament, it's an incomplete book. You have a plethora of prophecies and promises by God to people which are seemingly contradictory, just like the one we've just seen. A king and a priest together, Melchizedek, right hand, judgment. What does it mean? The Jewish people knew a Messiah was meant to come, but they had no idea what it was. They wanted a saviour. They wanted someone to come and liberate them from their physical oppression. But actually, they had a bigger problem than that too. You see, the truth was the biggest problem the Jewish people had was not the physical oppression they encountered generation after generation. It was that just like you and me, they refused to acknowledge God as king. I don't know if you know this, but one of the threads weaving its way throughout the Old Testament is God's people's constant rejection of God. Constantly saying no. Constantly saying no. Constantly saying me, not you. I'm the king. I'm in charge. The Jewish people thought they needed a king to come and overthrow the government, but what they really needed was what? A priest to come and bring them back to God. They were waiting for one, two, three different messiahs. They were weary, worn out, and lost. I wonder if you see the straight line towards you. The truth is that it's very, very rare that any person in this room would have experienced anything quite like the year we've just had. In 50 years' time, people will speak about the year we've just had. Here we are in the last few days of 2020, and the truth is all of us are weary All of us are run down. All of us are sick of being anxious. We're lost. We argue amongst ourselves, even within the church. Are you wearing a mask? I'm not wearing a mask. Are we singing? I'm going to sing anyway. We have these little petty arguments, but all these things. But the primary wrongdoing within us is not to be found in our response to COVID. COVID is not the problem. It's merely a symptom of the problem. The biggest problem any of us have, every one of us has, is that all of us have rejected God. All of us have looked at him and said, me, not you, me. And so just like the Jewish people, we think we need a king. We think we need someone to come and cure COVID for us, someone to overthrow this virus. But that virus is nothing more than a temporary problem when the biggest problem we have is eternal and permanent. But I want you to imagine something for me. Imagine you wake up on the 1st of January next year and you open up the newspaper and the headline is, Eureka! Hallelujah! Woo! Whatever it is. And it turns out that actually there's been someone for the last few months, someone, some anonymous person from some know-nothing, nowhere kind of town like Newcastle or Wollongong. Look at me like acting like I'm a coastie. You know, the other day I was at Avoca. Yesterday I was at Avoca with my family. And um, we were on the beach. And these people came over and tried to like, you know, take the spot where we were. They had dogs. We didn't want dogs. And I walked back. And I'd been living on the Central Coast for like six weeks. And I looked at them and just thought, 
Sydney. <laughs> Sydney scum. Look at these guys. I wanted to shout, locals only. Is that what you do? I think. Not sure. So the next day, no, what am I saying? You wake up, woo, salvation is here. And it turns out there's somebody, this nobody from a know-nothing town has developed a cure for COVID. Boom, it's out, it works, everyone can be cured. But not just that. As time goes on, it becomes very clear that this guy hasn't just developed a cure, he's also developed a perfect vaccine. A vaccine that doesn't knock people out on live television, that doesn't actually give you HIV positive things. It's bizarre what's happening. He does all these things and suddenly it looks like COVID doesn't even exist anymore. Even more than that, though, he develops an antidepressant that cures COVID-related anxiety. If you think he's done it, he hasn't even got started. Several months later, it becomes clear that he's developed an economic stimulus plan to bring Australia out of the great recession we're about to face. Can you imagine if one man did all of this? Well, you can't, can you? That's impossible. I mean, in 10 years' time, with the work of hundreds of thousands of people, maybe, just maybe, you might have something like it, but one person developing all of these things, it doesn't seem real. The Jewish people wanted a king to liberate them from their slavery to sin. The Jewish people needed a king to liberate them from their slavery to sin. But they also desperately, urgently needed a priest, a priest to intercede between them and God and cleanse them by sacrifice. You and I... We urgently need a king. We need a king to rule over our lives because we've made a mess of it. We need a king to, to lead us and guide us, but we also urgently need a priest, whether you know it or not, urgently to intercede between us and God. Yet it is not possible for this to occur as priests and kings come from different tribes as dictated by God's promises. The true situation of life for the Jewish people and us today is jet black. And yet into this darkness, God shone his light. Jesus of Nazareth was born in a dusty, dirty stable. He had no education. He was not from a prominent family. He most likely would have been called a bastard by the other kids as his parents were unmarried when his mother became pregnant. He was a rural tradesman working as a carpenter. On surface level, there was absolutely nothing to attract people to him. But then, suddenly out of nowhere, at the age of around 30, he begins to speak. And as he speaks, people listen. And as they listen, they understand, I've never heard anything like this. He performs signs and wonders. He heals illnesses, controls the wind and the waves. He even raises the dead. And as people saw him do it, they thought, we've never seen anything like this. His disciples and followers began to build up hope. Maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the one. But then, he dies. He's murdered. All hope seems lost. And yet the disciples were not to know, although we are to rejoice in the fact that his death was not the end, but always part of the plan. Three days later, he rose from the dead, resurrected physically. And suddenly, for those who would see, 
the context that has taken thousands of years to develop. The promised land, the covenants, the promises, the prophecies, the prophecies. It becomes clear to all who would see and all who would hear that when Jesus turned up and spoke, it wasn't random. It was the complete fulfillment of every promise of God. All these prophecies and promises had felt like loose strands on a blanket, all of them just being pulled out randomly. But it became clear in Jesus' death and resurrection and what he said and what he did that these were not loose strands at all, but rather part of a perfect knot tied together in the person of Jesus. How can God's son, David's son, be greater than David? How can David's son be called master? Because he is not just the Messiah. He is the Messiah and the son of God. How can the Messiah be both king and priest? Because his kingship is given to him by God upon his resurrection from the dead. And because he is made a priest, not in the order of Levi, but in the order of Melchizedek. Why did Jesus not come and overthrow the Roman government? Why did he not put himself into the highest office in the land? Why does Jesus not come now and cure COVID and take it all away? Because he knows the biggest problem in our lives is not the temporary pain, the temporary conflict. The biggest problem in our lives is sin. It's that each of us has looked at God and said, me, not you. We have tried to make ourselves king. We deserve to be God's enemies. And left to our own devices, that's exactly what we are. And so out of God's great love for you, Jesus did not just come as king. He came as priest. What does the priest do? He intercedes between the people and God. He represents and intervenes. He mediates between the people, the sinful, broken people and God. And he sacrifices so they can be made clean. You see the final part of this puzzle that makes sense of all of it? It's not only that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. It's not just that he's the king and a priest. It's that he's the very lamb who was slaughtered by the priest. He is the lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. You know, the book of Hebrews right at the end I was always super confused by the book of Hebrews. Whenever someone said, I love the book of Hebrews, I'm like, liar. No, you don't. I'm sure they did. Sorry, I'm just, I'm just cynical like that. Turn with me in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 7. We'll end with this. But Hebrews chapter 7, we don't know who wrote it, is rich in its unraveling for us and its unveiling for us the true identity of Jesus it's rich in explaining for us who Jesus is in the light of these promises of Melchizedek and priesthood and kingship. And you can see the little subheadings in your Bible might indeed have for chapter 7, Melchizedek the priest and Jesus like Melchizedek. But I want you to go to verse 23. Verse 23. 
If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Just listen as I read it and understand what this is saying about Jesus and you. Listen here. I'll start at verse 20. I beg your pardon, verse 20. And it was not without an oath. Now, this is the oath that God took. It is not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. A quote from Psalm 110. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weaknesses, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Look at verse 25 and 26. As priest, Jesus came to offer complete and total salvation for sinners. I do not know where you have been and what you have done and what you have seen. I do not know what guilt hangs around your soul that you believe is beyond forgiveness. I do not know what sin hangs around your soul that you believe is so terrible it can't possibly be washed clean. But the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ offers complete and total salvation for all those who would believe. You can be forgiven because it is not on the basis of your good works, but on the basis of his priesthood. Verse 25, as priest, Jesus intercedes for you. Do you know what that means? That right now, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, Jesus Christ intercedes for you personally to God the Father. Jesus Christ prays for you to God the Father. He takes your prayers, broken, messy, entangled in all types of stuff, and he presents them to the Father, perfect and pure and holy. Jesus Christ is your intercessor. You don't need me to do it or a priest to do it. He has done it for you. He is the great high priest. How can he do it? Verse 26. And what a great place for us to end. Who is Jesus? He is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens because of his resurrection, ascension, and glorification at the right hand of God. My dear friends, what do these truths mean? How do they transform your life? It's very simple. Is Jesus your king or do you reject him? Have you bowed the knee before God, before Jesus, before his throne and said, you are my king. Father, forgive me for what I've done. Lord Jesus, accept my repentance and faith. Jesus, I'm sorry. Or have you looked at the throne of Jesus and said, no, no, me, not you, me. My friends, if that is you, it's not too late. Stop running and turn back to him. And if Jesus is your king, as you review your life and the stress and anxiety and worry, let me assure you, pay no heed. 
Jesus reigns and rules. He rules over COVID. He rules over worry. He rules over anxiety. He rules over yesterday. He rules over tomorrow. He rules over your eternity. Bring it to him and rest. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. We thank you that the Lord Jesus is both king and priest, is both Messiah and son of God. Lord, I pray for those here who have not bared the knee before your son Jesus as king, that you would so work in their hearts that they would see their desperate need and cry out for forgiveness. And I pray for those of us, Lord, who do have your son as king, that we would live lives like it, that we would grow and change, that we would understand more and more what it means to follow Christ the king. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.